You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. You have seen in computing, um, every time an interaction metaphor um, just resonates with the user, you see an expansion and an explosion in computing. And we've seen this kind of a couple times before. Hello, I'm Marek Pawlowski, founder of Mex, and you just heard my guest on today's show, Jared Ficklin, founding partner and chief creative technologist at Argo Design, sharing what I think is one of the great truths of the digital age. It's one of the reasons why Apple has managed to sustain its broad success across a few generations of computing. When you master a big change in the way people interface with digital information, that that interaction layer, you gain a big advantage, especially if you can do it early ahead of others. So the move from keyboards and command lines to the mouse and windowing environments, the breakthrough in the quality of capacitive touchscreens and that home screen icon grid on the iPhone, Amazon and Alexa with voice interfaces, Apple again with the glanceable UI and the scroll wheel on the watch. Just a note of caution actually before we get into this. Jared and I do somehow get around to talking about robots and reproduction at one point. Nothing too salacious, but just in case you're listening along with a younger future design leader in your family and you're not comfortable with that, I thought I would mention it up front. But getting back to UIs and these generational leaps, Jared was making the point that all of these types of events represent inflection points. These are points when, even if digital experiences might have existed for some time, but have been sort of stuck in that early adopter phase, these inflection points are the things which suddenly open them up to a mass audience when you make that leap forward in the interaction layer. Now, Jared was actually another introduction from Mark Ralston, who I spoke to in episode 68 of this podcast. And the two of them have been partners in crime for some time. Uh, They worked together at Frog Design. Uh, They co-founded Argo Design together. And it's a studio which has become really celebrated, I think, for its its human-centered approach to pushing the boundaries of digital experience design. And we talk quite a lot about what's happening at those boundaries. Uh, For instance, Jared has been working with Magic Leap on their mixed reality platform. But we also talk about the methods and the culture which make it possible for a studio to do that kind of work. And it's a bit more complex than you might expect, certainly a bit more complex than I expected going into the conversation. You know, nurturing that kind of environment isn't just about getting smart people and having access to the latest kit. There's actually a lot of nuance to the business model uh, and the methods which are employed that are necessary to make that sort of stuff happen effectively. So we talk about that. Uh, We get augmented somehow mid-conversation by Chris Isaac in a uniquely 2020 sort of a moment. Uh, And we somehow end up on a thread which connects Jared's ancestor's role in the Declaration of Independence with skate parks and on to flying trams. So as ever, if you want to follow along as we go down that rabbit hole, you can find detailed show notes at mobileuserexperience.com where we have put links to all of those things we get to talking about. I'll be back at the end, but for now, here's my chat with Jared Ficklin, founding partner and chief creative technologist at Argo Design. Let's get our tea warm and gingery and ready to go. Sounds like the perfect setting. I've got some peppermint on the go here, so I think we're we're both in good shape. We're well prepared. We're well uh, hydrated, at least. Yeah, listeners, get caffeinated. Here we go. <laughs> so let's talk about this phrase, peak technology, because it's, 
I think a seemingly deceptively simple one, but I'm curious for you what the fear is around that phrase and what the hope is. Yeah, the phrase peak technology comes out of sensing anxieties in the world and especially anxieties in product designers um, at Argo Design and elsewhere um, in that technology has had a 200-year history of generally improving humanity almost automatically to the point where we became very accustomed with it, with that being a fact. Yet recently, um, we've started seeing technology come out onto the market where we're wondering how much does it do to advance humanity? And sometimes this is at a very low level, right? It's um, the low cost of manufacturing has enabled um, places like China to push products onto the market. So they take two products like a blender and a cooler and a Bluetooth radio and a battery, and they shove it all together and have a blender, Bluetooth, cooler, radio battery that you can sit on and drive around a parking lot. I think you're basically describing a lot of the halls at CES last year. Right. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, I'm not sure anyone asked for these things. Um, It used to be so expensive to make a product and get it on the market that you went to a product designer very carefully, tested the market to see that there was going to be a value for it and a pool. But now that you can put something together so low cost and list it and wait for people to buy it, manufacture it and push it out, that that there's kind of a push action happening. And this is creating a whole lot of specious things that people wonder, like, what is that? What is that doing to improve humanity? And then there's a high level of this. People look at things like um, the social media they use, the, you know, the great and powerful Facebook, and they begin answering asking the question, how much of this is there for me and my friends? And how much of it is that is this there just to serve Facebook? Like how often am I getting on Facebook just for Facebook to do Facebook? And what is that doing to improve humanity? And then you can go even one level higher than that. And to the layperson, when you look at things like what, you know, Boston Dynamics is doing, making essentially cyborg robots and um, with a whole interest industry around um, sex robots now with AI and everything. Um, you know, some people ask, what is that doing to advance humanity? I mean, uh, if we all had sex with just robots, that would, you know, unless we had some other technology to come and that would end humanity. <laughs> There'd be no more procreation, right? And and so we're, we're seeing this now for the first time and we're asking these questions, have we reached peak technology, right? And so I will define peak not technology Um, more directly now as the moment. It's the year in which more than half of the products that come out on the market do absolutely nothing to advance humanity. And we can now measure ourselves. We now can look at this curve and we see it flattening from this like upward rise of new technology comes out, humanity improved to it leveling out, maybe flattening and maybe going to ascending curve. And I, I think a lot of the anxiety people have about technology today is captured in this notion. So if we stick with the fear and anxiety bit, and I guess we should give listeners some hope that we will get to the hopeful bit as well. But if we stick with the fear and anxiety bit for the moment, like how much of your personal fear around this comes from some of those individual products and kind of how far up that curve they are versus the aggregate effect of multiple of these things coming into our lives and if you like the the overload factor of it's not necessarily that the one particular product has got a particularly pernicious goal in of itself but that when you're overwhelmed by multiple of these that the experience problems comes from that but yeah well so the anxiety for me uh, comes on multiple levels one is being a product designer you're always worried that you are participating and foisting this upon humanity um ha- uh, they, i think the question inside the question you're answering there is how how worried are you that this is truly dangerous and how much of it is a direct danger how much is an indirect danger uh, it's very i feel it's very indirect <laughs> this is the kind of thing where you just yeah you just kind of get overwhelmed um, 
the direct dangers are the stuff of science fiction, you know, that the robots get smart and decide that they're better than humans and decide to, you know, off us. Um, that's, I think, way off in the future and not really the true danger. Um, I've always talked, <laughs> it's more of the indirect dangers of like, okay, um, we really f- fall in love with this idea of electrification decide that every coffee mud needs to have a lithium ion battery. So we go and find all the lithium and cobalt and the molybdenum needed to put these exotic batteries together, uh, destroy a, a tipping point um, ecology on the way. And then a hundred years wake up realizing that the planet's so out of balance that uh, our specific biology known as humanity uh, is uh, imperiled upon it, <laughs> you know, because our, our purposes get misaligned here. And I think that's, that's the greater fear. Um, you know, like everyone's afraid of Skynet. I'm not afraid of Skynet. Um, the military believes in fail-safes, but I'm a little afraid of programmatic because marketing doesn't believe in fail-safe, right? And so, like, you're, you're using this AI to try and target customers for bank uh, A, uh, you know, with a campaign, and, and the AI figures out, hey, actually, Bank B would be the better mortgage product. And you're like, oh, well, but our client is Bank A. So could you just say it's Bank A? Now we're teaching the AI to lie. So I've joked about death by uh, 4.7 stars, which is the most believable review on um, Amazon or eBay. Um, Yeah, there's an interesting nuance, I think, to to all of that, as you say, striking that balance that we are as humans at least for now still equipped with our very good fuzzy brain filters which allow us to sense where something is perhaps a little too good like the the five star review would be but 4.7 feels just about right somehow just about positive enough but i mean you mentioned an interesting word there purpose that with all of these things they are amplifiers for purpose in some way shape or form whether you're talking about building intelligent robots whether you're talking about serving up the most effective ads they all in some way are serving the purpose of the people behind them which yeah in a way i suppose gets down to the fundamentals of of user-centered design that understanding that purpose understanding the desires of whatever stakeholders are involved it's the fundamentals of being a designer however that then manifests into a, a product and you've must have a degree of agency you know in how you decide to channel that purpose in how you relate and work with the client in the case of a, a product design organization like like argo to help them you know steer them towards purposes which are um, are in service of humanity rather than against it yeah and you've there's yes and you've you 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 divide defined um uh, one of the cards I like to play to get out of this uh, product designers develop dilemma um, there when you said in service to, um, and that's a little philosophy I call technophilia. Technophilia is this notion that it's okay to love technology so long that you love humanity equally or better. And yeah, we could get into the philosophical examination of, well, what does it mean to love it? humanity? But let's just keep it um, quite uh, uh, simple to the feeling, uh, and that that's a good philosophy. And then the second philosophy that we hold more as a tactic at Argo Design is, one, we're in it for the, the journey, which is a trite little saying, since Argo was a ship, you know, that Jason used to go get the golden fleece and, you know, bring it back, um, which is a great metaphor for product design, by the way. You have a ship that can see into the future and you go and brave all the waters to find this golden fleece and bring back the riches, right? <laughs> Save humanity from the gods. Um, but um, the second is that um, we look for places where design will make a meaningful difference. And now meaningful can be on a lot of different levels. It could be meaningful to the user or the business model in place, but also meaningful to humanity uh, in a general sense, you know, that it really makes some sort of difference. Um, you know, it's not always like super higher purpose, like, you know, um, end poverty, but it certainly shouldn't contribute to it. And at a lower level, yeah, like you were saying, you have to really find the value for the user and then guide it. Now, I do think there's some ways on a larger level to avoid peak technology. And one of them is to think about a technology 
does it amplify humanity or does it emulate humanity? And we should lean towards things that amplify humanity rather than the things that emulate humanity. And as a general rule, that could be in what it does and how it does it, but it also could be how it's architected and how it works, right? So when you, when you think of robotics, um, you know, should we be making cyborgs or exoskeletons um, on, a, on a kind of a big philosophical level? Or when we deploy the cyborgs, are they autonomous and fully AI driven or are they telepresence driven by an operator and to what purpose? So when you think across the things that you've worked on at Argo, I guess, in sort of recent memory, are there any particular standouts which for you come closest to that goal of, of amplifying as opposed to just emulating humanity? Well, I will give two examples. One that seems very direct, and that's the current project that I'm working on. We're in a strategic design partnership with Magic Leap. And Magic Leap makes a wearable mobile computer. It's a augmented reality or mixed reality spatial computing headset. It has a light pack you wear on your hip that is a lot of computing power. At least the current generation does. This won't be the form factor forever. And then it has what they call a lightware that you wear on your head. It's very similar to the HoloLens 2. In fact, they kind of peers of each other came out at the same time. Um, what's very interesting about this type of computer is that um, in order to, one, you wear it and you wear it on your head. You look through it and you see the real world. And what it does is it mixes digital content in with the real world. And in order to do that accurately, it's been gifted with a lot of the senses that we have. So it's been gifted the sense of sight through both uh, normal RGB cameras and also depth sensing cameras. You know, and it's been given the sense of hearing with a very good array microphone set, right? And it senses your environment and it regards it much in the same way you do. You know, that's a solid thing that's flat and wide. It's a wall. This is a thing with four legs and a seat. That's a chair, right? In doing so, actually, the computer becomes a little more human. And computing with the computer is a lot more human because you're looking outward into the environment, rather inward into a screen. And, um, and you wear it as you walk around. So I think that's a very direct example of here's something that will really amplify the power of humanity and how it does computing. And look, look, we left biological evolution arguably 20,000 years and years ago, and we are really in this interesting, fragile point between biological and technological evolution, right? So think technophilia. One of the reasons I'm okay with this notion, I'll wear this computer all the time when it's the size of eyeglasses and have a digital lifestyle joining me in a physical lifestyle is because I feel my digital lifestyle is part of me. Um, you know, a meta me, as Mark and I both like to talk about it. Mark Ralston's a partner at Argo Design, the uh, founding partner. Yeah, so he was the, the guy who introduced us. And in fact, I spoke to in a previous episode of this show back in episode 68, I think. And, you know, I know you guys have been creative partners for some time. Um, 20 years. <laughs> I mean, it's fascinating to have a creative partnership that has had that kind of duration to it and i mean absolutely i wanted to ask you about it, actually like when you think about the kind of day-to-day -day tools that you're using to do the work now in partnership with mark still but thinking back to when you started 20 years ago like how much of those tools changed clearly the, the the products that you're working on and these these visions of the future that you're working on have accelerated considerably but has there been much change in the day-to-day -day tools that you're using to achieve that? Oh, we've been through three or four waves of actual tools at this point, um, you know, and there's been this transition from, you know, really powerful native software to um, partially cloud-supported to now much more fully cloud-supported um, tools. The tools themselves have gone from moving pixels to actually accommodating flows and being really tailor-made to actually putting together the UIs as conventions got stronger um, to now they they are, you know, really closely um, related to even the engineering. 
but the, the main tool that we've used for all these years is really narrative and storytelling. And that has not changed. Design is this process of um, taking what the user values in a technology, um, discovering it, and then creating a story of the experience of using it and then manifesting that. And that part has not changed. That has been the same um, for all 20 years and I think is one of our strengths is the more rapidly you can figure that out, that's what the efficiency in design looks like. But the more creatively you can come up with the experience, that's where the artistry of design is. And the more directly you can address the value and remove friction between the user and what they value in the experience is the return on investment for design. That part has not changed. Just the tools that do it have changed a lot. But we still go back to the old ones every now and then. I will still fire up the fir- one of the first design tools I used, which was Flash. <laughs> and code something together like that's like just the you know the tools are like the, your instrument they're like your saxophone um, you want to have a mastery of them so you can play the jazz the jazz is that improvisational part that you know comes from synergy with the room and feeling the flow of the music and not having to think about the technique and the tools yeah and i guess there's as you describe, you know, for instance, some of the work around Magic Leap and how the experiences that you're able to create through that in terms of sort of amplifying the, the human experience, like I can hear from the way you're describing it and from the, the, the experiences that I myself have had with some of these, these mixed reality devices that you know, that's something which takes you out into different dimensions or at least dimensions which might not have been a big part of the work 20 years ago when you, you started on this. You know, you're talking there about the, firstly, you know, the sense of depth coming into these things, uh, the idea that you might be having interfaces which project out into the real world, which are influenced by the physical environment around them. They've got different kinds of of sensors. And, you know, it does make me, me wonder about the sort of, the richness that that's able to bring, you know, what that next wave of computing might actually feel like. You know, we said at the beginning of this that we were going to talk about fear and anxiety to start off with, but I think there's certainly, to to me at least, it sounds like there are elements of hope in that, in, you know, the additional sort of richness and relation to the human experience that those kind of new dimensions of computing could have, that that there's got to be reason for hope there somewhere and how that can actually manifest. And I'm curious as to what, what kind of experiences you yourself are most sort of hopeful will come out of that. Um, the weirdest thing just happened to me um, while you were talking uh, that I did not anticipate. And this is funny. This is how technology, like this was a, such a peak technology moment. Oh my God. Right here on, on our, while we were just so elegantly talking, um, Bluetooth decided to jump in and give me a call for uh, that was just completely spammy. I didn't answer it. I knew it was spammy. We're getting a lot of spam calls in the States right now because we're in the midst of an election. And, uh, you know, and I think there's been something like seven trillion texts sent out or seven billion texts sent out or something. It's like amazing. This this convergence of modern technology so it decides to jump into my headphones and then this this somehow starts um triggering chris isaac playing um uh in my headphones and and so here you are um speaking very elegantly about the future of technology and i'm and i'm and i'm hearing how how much i don't want to fall in love again <laughs> trying to figure out what the heck is going on here. And I'm like, I, I was just in a podcast a moment you ago. Say, you say this is an edit point, but I'm, I'm only seeing opportunity here. I feel like we somehow need to get the rights for that Chris Isaac tune and edit it into the flow so people can experience what you experienced. Oh my goodness. I'll, I've been learning it on guitar. I'll sing it for you later. It'll be the moment at which everyone turns off the podcast, but man, um, uh, coordination, man, this is something that in technology that product designers are really focused on right now. Like we've set up all the big technologies and they've been set up for a decade now. And we've been filling in the gaps in between. And there's a 
huge, great value comes from closing small gaps. But like the last 10 years has been closing small gaps in technology and just trying to like uh, smooth together these moments so that we could seamlessly be living our digital lifestyles, right? And we just, what just happened, there was a huge, huge gap opened up, a huge break, right? Um, and this is why there's so much design all of a sudden, like design is everywhere. Like in the last 10 years, it's exploded. Like CEOs, executives, even directorships and VPs are learning about design thinking at huge corporations where they used to just think about engineering or logistics or operations. Um, meanwhile, agencies, um, there's more than there's ever been before. We're truly living in a golden age of design because we're living in a golden age of technology. And someone has to like put order and organization to all this stuff. Uh, meanwhile, like uh, like we were talking earlier, a Chinese factory can just design something and throw it on the market. So now there's this notion of who uh, who's going to curate this stuff and decide what can come out on the market, right? And make it actually friction-free for users. Meanwhile, we're transitioning into whole brand new types of computing that some of which like spatial computing offer some natural reductions of friction and then others like AI um, offer perhaps the opportunity to put very specialized intelligence towards closing these gaps for us. And hopefully all of it is what opens up a little more airspace for us to be um, amplified humans and live in a nice world of technophilia. I have no idea if that addresses what you were saying while Chris Isaac was thinking, but it's, it's verbally what, how I had to conclude that moment. I was like, holy cow, this just what a trigger that was. You've been augmented by Chris Isaac, but no, it's, it is a, a good answer. And it, it gets to, you know, some of the, the things I suppose, which uh, I at least personally feel a bit of, of hope around, around those different sort of experiential elements and dimensions and how they might be put into service around closing some of those gaps because i, I completely agree with you it's, it's certainly been something which has been a real focus of the mex initiative over the last kind of decade plus is that sense that yeah, a lot of the at least a lot of the quick wins in uh, design uh, of digital products have started to become around the gaps between the different digital touch points as much as the touch points themselves and it does make me wonder as we start to add these additional experiential elements dimensions whatever you want to call them that come with something like spatial computing which come with devices like the, the magic leap products you know can those experiential elements help to smooth over, enhance, you know, make greater than the sum of their parts, some of those gaps and how they're being solved, uh, you know, can they be applied as methods towards that, towards enhancing those sort of, those, those joining up of the dots, if you like, between these different digital touch points? Yeah, we call it for designers, like just to be like pure design shop talk here, we call these um, no UI interfaces. Um, in that much of what we've done as designers in in the app economy, which, which is what has evolved at this point, because every day humans wake up, they launch an app, they launch another, they launch another. We use a tool, a feature called multitasking, usually part of the operating system to switch between those apps. What we're really doing is putting together a workflow. And then we swap them out and put in another workflow. And this is what humans are biologically specialized to do. We're really good at imagining um, these fictional workflows and putting them together. Um, and computing has really evolved to this point to serve that very well. But we're seeing the edges of that, right? And design has followed that as well. Like we think about narrative, right? The flow of the workflow. We think a lot about progressive disclosure. Most of our conventions deal with how to get people from one context to another, right? I'm at the home screen. Now I'm checking my email. Now I'm looking at the email. Now I'm organizing the email. You know, the tabs across your browser, that's a form of progressive disclosure. The search field and then the results and then the filters on it. It's all of it's about asking the user, what context do you want to be in next? And we, we've mastered that in terms of screens. What's coming next with spatial computing is additional context that solves some of those frictions for us. And especially for, a, for about half of the computing world. There's, the computing world is divided right now. You have people who sit at screens and largely organize workflows virtually. 
And then you have you still have people who are out in the field, predominantly dealing with the physical world. And they have screens. They got to look at their screen, look at the physical world, look at their screen, look at the physical world. Now, the first thing that's going to help both these sets of users is the screen will get larger. When you put on a wearable mobile computer, the screen is the whole room that you're in. So it just continues the trend of monitors up till now. It just gets wider and wider until it's 360 degrees in all directions. Secondly, you don't have to do the look down, look up. But the last part is really interesting. This is what Mark Ralston calls placefulness. And me and him have been thinking about placefulness for the last 10 years really directly. And that's that if I take an application out of the phone and set it next to the physical part of the workflow, it actually absorbs a lot of context. I'll paint a simple picture for you. Okay, imagine you're a housekeeper at a hotel. And you have an app on your phone that tells you which rooms need service. And you find the app, you launch the app, you go to the part of the app that tells you which room needs service. You look up a room or you go through a list of rooms, right? And you go, okay, does this need service? Does this one need service? Does this one need service? That was a lot of steps and that's modern computing. What's on that app is literally just a web page, right? For the most part. It's just communicating with the server and coming back with a context. Well, if you take that little web page and you put it next to, say, room 530, you don't need the UI where you searched for 530. You don't need the UI where you launched the app. You don't need the UI where you went in. All you need to do is authenticate and look at room 530, and it will tell you if it needs cleaning or not. Same with 531, 532. You can walk down the whole hall, right? So just taking software and putting it out in space, one removes a lot of basic frictions of computing and enhances multitasking, right? So when we think of the multitasking, let's think of the workflow of someone who is a facilities engineer at a craft brewery, right? And I tour a lot of craft breweries. They're really fun. Um, They're these little small industrial um, operations run by very passionate people (laughs) dealing with something that a lot of people love, and that's beer. And Uh, They all have this little engineering room where the facility engineer, they always show it to you on every tour. And it's this desk. It usually has four or five monitors on it hooked to four or five computers with four or five keyboards and four or five mouse. And what's on the screen is usually web pages because the brewery, a modern brewery, is now digitized. It's running off the Internet of Things. All the sensors are reporting to the Internet. All the valves have servos that can be controlled by the Internet. The tanks can tell you their level, their pressure, their temperatures, um, which pipes hold what liquids and so all that's displayed on web pages across all these screens right and you know they have little work ticket systems that they have sometimes where it's like okay i need someone to go clean this tank at three o'clock tomorrow when we purge it right um and that's in there too so all the workflow is held in this one engineering room on all these monitors and you know keep having to circle back up to that room and then going back to the factory for or opening up your app well, you can take all these things off of there and put. you could put the valve control next to the valve. You can put this tank status next to the tank. You can put the work ticket into the warehouse, right? And if someone's wearing a computer, like a, a, a pair of goggles or such, their physical and their digital workflows are now lined up. They go from tank to tank and they can the two are, are, are blended together. That removes a lot of friction. And all this is just based on context. Now, imagine if you started getting like the kind of recommendation engines that we're having with artificial intelligence to launch the next piece of software you need to do the next task, to start anticipating what you need yet next, right? Um, this is where this is where like the next patterns of computing will evolve. And then I think a new metaphor will evolve as well, because right now we're still dealing with the same metaphor we dealt with for since the 1960s, right? Which is in order to help the general public understand computing and really to help businesses first, they made up a metaphor that looked like the office place, right? You have a desktop, you have files, you have folders. We now have people putting files into folders who have never actually put a file into a folder, (laughs) nor do they own a filing cabinet, right? Well, you can imagine that like this kind of place on this could change the entire metaphor I could say the presentation is on my desk, right? And when I say that, you could go to my desk and literally the presentation was there, but you could also, and you may have done this mentally already. When I said the presentation was on my desk, you probably, without realizing it, imagined an office and imagined a desk. This is the way our brains work. We're fictional creatures and we always imagine the environment before we get there, right? 
um, this is why um, geographic mnemonics are so powerful for memory, right? So now you could think, oh, you could go into an interface on your iPhone and go, there's Jared, there's his office, there's his desk, there's the presentation, right? It's a very spatial metaphor instead of files and folders. And that was four steps, right? And those four steps are about three steps less on average than you would do if you were doing this with the file folder metaphor, because you would have had to find drive, Jared, um, Argo design, um, you know, uh, presentations, uh, the ones for this podcast and, you know, finally get down to the file after you authenticated and ask for permission to join. Right. Um, and as you say, I mean, one of the things that I think is, is fascinating about that is that, as you say, so many people are going to be coming from a different set of reference points to relate to all of that. And there are now increasing numbers and it will become an ever increasing proportion of people who, as you say, don't have those same sort of physical reference points or are going to have a whole new set of, of physical reference points, which are going to mean a need for an adaptability of those experiences, that placefulness for you and me of a certain generation is going to feel different to placefulness of people who are in the, the, the coming generations and being able to, to adapt to those things, which, yeah, having that flexibility obviously is, is a real opportunity there. But one of the things I, I really wanted to get a sense of you from, because I know for you, you're a big believer in the power of, of making and experimenting to explore these things and kind of push at the edges and, and the, the reality of, of how it feels to, to make these kind of experiments in technology. Have you got a sense of which parts of that experience need the most work at the moment as you start to put them into practice? You know, I think the vision that you described there of placefulness and that more contextual role for the physical environment in defining these computing metaphors it is full of opportunity and, and hope but i'm wondering what are the like what are the practical barriers that you're coming up against in trying to actually make that happen effectively you know is is the computer vision technology of the different types of sensors which are required to actually make that feel smooth and like a well-designed experience for the end users are they sufficient yet? Are they are they making progress fast enough that for you as a maker, you feel like we're on the cusp of, of making that a, a mainstream reality? Yeah, yeah, right. So think by making, right? That's our our, our 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 creed at Argo Design. We like to solve problems by um, making them as real as rapidly as possible, right? Ideas are easy. The idea of you know, become something meaningful or more viable or valid as you apply it against something. With this technology of spatial computing, um, yeah, so let's take it in the segments that you were implying to. Sensors and hardware um, is at a point now where these wearable mobile computers are useful for business, early adopters, and probably experiential novelty. They're a little too big and heavy for to replace um, a handheld mobile at the moment. Right. They have a lot of potential value now, but they're a little big and heavy um, for the moment. So they need a little Moore's Law miniaturization over the next five years to get down to what is essentially a you know, pair of eyeglasses. And there's some accessory technologies, I think, that are going to be needed to enable that. There's nothing in the laws of physics that prevents that, but you're going to probably have to offload some of the computing stack into um, nearby nodes. And this is where this is why spatial computing and 5G get mentioned together a lot, right? Because now you need a low latency connection to those nodes. All this technology exists, but the architecture for deployment is what's being worked on now. So on that side of it, you got kind of a zero to five year progression to get to something that that is the science fiction that has this like, in terms of form factor, wide adoption. Right now we're at the early adoption where someone's paid to wear it or pays to wear it for a short time because it's so freaking cool to check out, right? But it's not something I'm going to wear all day and replace my iPhone with yet. The second part in terms of design, and is the part we are working on very hard right now, is the metaphor that we were just talking about is not quite landed. Um, you have seen in computing, um, every time an interaction metaphor um, just resonates with the user, 
you see an expansion and an explosion in computing. And we've seen this kind of a couple times before. File and mainframe and the monastic domain of, of computing back in the mainframe days gave way to general computing once the Windows metaphor hit the two-foot experience. Suddenly, desktop file folder, everyone could use these things. Um, before the uh, iPhone came out, we had feature phones that were very capable. You know, they had killer apps and they, people began using them, but you didn't see wide adoption until the home screen app yo-yo of iOS became the dominant pattern, the metaphor. And both of these became so dominant that if you want to be a handheld mobile computer, you have to use this metaphor because it's the one that communicates. So that's one of the things that is not quite there with spatial computing yet. What exactly is the metaphor that the user connects to? And this goes right down to, you know, because these are these are going to be transmodal devices. They actually watch your hands. You may have a control in your hand that you use, but you don't have a mouse and a keyboard. You're actually able to point things or invoke them or manipulate them directly. You need to work out with them from afar. You need to work with them closely. You use your voice while you're doing it as well. You can say like, put that over there or open this application if you're in a quiet environment, or you can just kind of like hold your hand up. Like, you know, that little game where you're like, I, I pinched your head off, like in the little C and kind of like move around. We have to establish that metaphor for it to go. Also how the software itself reacts, right? And is organized. Um, you know, we told this story of like software launching itself. And right now, if I were to do that on your laptop or your phone, because it's a personal pattern of computing, you, you actually get very offended. We call them pop-ups and people don't want it to happen. But in order to really realize the beauties of spatial computing, we need to connect with a metaphor where that can happen and you don't feel like it's a violation. So these two things, the miniaturization of the hardware and the perfection of the, uh, the, the architecture of the network and the perfection of the uh, uh, model, that's, those are the big moves that are ha happening. And they are happening and they're converging very quickly. I, I think sometime in the next year, we will see the general big points of the model come together. And um, after that, it's a game of miniaturization. And then we just start writing the software. Before you know it, you will be playing Pokemon Go or um, putting together a presentation or picking out a podcast um, using your little um, wearable mobile computer in the form of eyeglasses or a, a headset. When you're pushing the boundaries of like novel metaphors like that, because this is, this is a different kind of work for, that you're describing here, I think from the day-to-day -day of most design agencies where you might be making iterative improvements. Uh, you might be making something which is that little bit better, that little bit more compelling for the user but fundamentally, it's an extension of what they're accustomed to. Does it change the way you involve users themselves in something like this when these are, by definition, going to be concepts which they're not yet familiar with, maybe even a little uncomfortable with to, to start off with? Does it change how you think about that involvement of the user in the design process? Absolutely. What you're describing very well is what I, I like to call the unique place. The unique place is when you're working on a design with a technology that is sufficiently unique, right? So it's either sufficiently innovative, the user lacks familiarity, and it doesn't derive from convention, right? So just imagine a Venn diagram in the air. And where those three cross over is what I call the unique place. And where you're in the new unique place, you, you kind of have to use different practices uh, because you can't really go to the user and say, hey, how do you use this spatial computing? Um, they don't know. They have no idea. And in Western cultures, especially, they'll just lie to you. And it, uh, so to do design research to figure out where the value is, you actually have to use really clever methods that can get quite expensive. The second thing is there's no convention to draw from, right? What's the convention for transmodal interfaces? It's entirely experimental. So in these cases, you have to be a lot more presumptive with your design. I say in these cases, you turn to the technology and you ask the technology what value do you have for the user? And this is where think by making really um, comes to bear. You know, at Argo Design, we do this 
a lot. We actually begin to build rapid code environments, expedient environments that deal with the interface as close to the technology as possible. So when it came to spatial computing, before we had wearable mobile headsets, we were hanging projectors on the wall in our studio, putting uh, Kinect computer vision cameras staring at a table so that we could have an interface that was painted in space and we could start playing what are the principles of this interface. Once you've stood something up like that, you can now bring users to it and watch them use it and behave. And you'll get better data that way than if you just flattened went and looked at them. So yeah, when you're in the unique place, the, the tactic um, and what I just described there is what we call user experience simulation, okay, where you simulate the experience, desired experience for the user and then rapidly iterate it because you haven't put it into hardened engineered technology. Um, uh, so you, you got to get into this think by making mode. You have to be bravely presumptive in order to get things started. You can't fall in love with those presumptive ideas, though, because you have to be willing to shift them quickly as you watch them hit the uh, user and how the user regards with them uh, so you can let them steer you towards the correct answer. Uh, you just got to get moving in a direction. Yeah, it's very interesting and it's very different than when you're working on something that draws from convention or it has an existing user base or history. That can be a lot more iterative. Design research has a lot more tools and to draw from there. You have a lot more conventions to play there. And I'm really excited. I mean, I've spent a whole career working in this space of like, oh, okay, we're going to do, you know, we're going to take Xbox One, we're going to add Connect Voice, um, the Windows phones, be able to control it, right? All these brand new interfaces. What does it look like in terms of user experience? That's something I got to work with a team on for um, a couple of years. Uh, you know, help put together one of the first touch print screen printers for HP. And what we did was we built a model of the printer. We used Flash and hit an LCD screen in there and hit a whole computer under the table so that we could bring users up to it and we could see what interfaces and what models communicated that they could actually touch the screen and that they needed to touch the buttons on the screen to get to the result and what should be the order and progression, right? You got to make the thing and put it in front of users anytime you're in this kind of crazy, unique space. So how important is studio culture in making that actually happen in practice. You know, I was really intrigued by, I think it was something that you put on your, your LinkedIn profile in relation to Argo Design, where you talked about it as, as a home where talent and passion can become exploration. And it struck me that that's quite a strong statement about the culture of a company, of a studio, to have that kind of mindset in place. You know, do you think that's something which only becomes possible in a place where you have that very sort of defined culture towards that goal? Because you, you've had experience working for, you know, one of the largest design firms in, in the case of, of Frog Design, but now you're doing this within a studio which you, you know, helped to, to set up and, and co-found. And I'm curious as to, you know, how you sort of directed the culture of the studio towards being able to do that kind of brave experimentation yeah so i'm a frog fellow and i'm a frog fellow because of developing this user experience simulation and this think by making thing and, and it's definitely a part of argo no um this is why design studios still exist in part okay is because design is a very empathic um profession um, you really have to put yourself in the user's place. And so therefore you need a safe place. I love the boat metaphor of Argo. You need this safe space where you can exercise your design, right? So it's more than just giving them the tools and hiring the people with the skills and talents to do these things, but it's also giving them the permission and the encouragement to do them and the structures. Okay. So like we have a very strong project management core, for instance, and that project management core is there to take care of a lot of details so that the designer can really focus on the design and take more time with it. And we celebrate these milestones as well with people um, uh, culturally. And then what we all generally believe in is this design um, that makes a meaningful difference and a certain level of quality. And this is what brings us together. This is, these are only requirements to work at Argo really, is this belief that, that design should make a many, meaningful difference and that a certain willingness to pursue quality at a certain level, there are no other qualifiers. 
that helps us build like just an incredibly diverse shop with designers that have a lot of different talents and that they stay with us for a long time as well. So continuity. On the business side, we set up safe structures where we can be involved in the project for a long time. We do this in very much boring ways of how we you know, work out our contracts with our, our clients. We put expenses to um, operations. Like I said, you know, we make sure project management is something that we deliver and, and sell to our clients along with the design itself. There's a lot that goes into culturally just making this part of it. That's why, that's why we say we're in it for the journey. Well, it, it's interesting that you describe it in, in that way and those different elements of it. As you say, I think there's sometimes a tendency in studio culture to see some of those real foundational pillars that you described there around the way in which projects are structured as being the kind of less sexy part of, of design work or the, the less essential part of design work. But it's, it's absolutely the foundations on which that additional creativity and, and kind of brave space in which you can experiment needs to be built upon you know this uh, has got all the the hallmarks of a great conversation jared in as much as i'm left towards the end of our time together with probably another 100 questions that i want to ask you so i'm going to try and pick my last question quite carefully and it's a, a complete uh, right angle turn from what we have been talking about. There was one thing in your portfolio of work, which I was really curious about, stood out to me as being a little bit different from some of the others. And that's the wire. Are you able to tell me a little bit about where the inspiration came for, for, for that and why it was important to you personally? Yeah. So the wire is a concept for a public transit system, a mass transit system based on urban cable. Urban cable is um, an overhead transit system made up of essentially the same technology as ski gondolas engineered to be laid out horizontally over city streets uh, to carry people from point to point. And um, I have a bit of an activist and civic streak in me. Um, I've been a neighborhood association president. I started a crime task force in one of the neighborhoods I was in in order to help us live more peacefully. I was the executive co-director of the Austin Public Skate Park Action Committee, (laughs) which spent 10 years building uh, concrete and still public skate parks around Austin and Travis County. And I think it comes from my grandfather who was the mayor of North Ogden. And maybe from one of my ancestors way, 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 way back who signed the Declaration of Independence here in the United States. Uh, Don't take it personally. um, (laughs) It was a long time ago. (laughs) We're now good friends, right? Um, Absolutely. (laughs) Somewhere in my DNA is this notion that, that through civics you should improve. And I really feel like here locally in Austin, Texas, we looked at transportation in a really 1970s way, and we should bring about this notion of experience design to this notion of mass transit. And we kind of did this study of like, why don't people use buses and trains in North America? And it was a couple of things that kept turning up. One is they don't like schedules. Like we're such individualists in terms of freedom. We do not like to be told when to show up for a bus or a train. The second is personal space. Um, We actually like a certain amount outside of the northeastern part of the U.S. People want a certain amount of personal space. So then after establishing this is why people won't get on and we started went to look for technology. And I should acknowledge here that um, this all started in front of a poster at Frog with a a coworker of mine, Michael McDaniel, who is co-envisioned of the wire itself. And this is where we found Urban Cable as a technology. And. So we envisioned once when we started Argo, um, me and Michael had had done some work with a few cities to investigate this, and we decided at at Argo we should we should envision how this could change Austin, Texas. And so we we looked at the city, uh, we did a lot of research, we did a lot of talking to people in the city, and then started a lot of activism. Uh, we found a route for it, and really discovered how it could make a difference, and just made a story out of it, and. This, however, is a 40-year project and uh, about only seven or eight years into it now to perhaps realize this. Well, it, it struck me as a pretty beautiful 
global vision for public transportation. And, you know, although it sounds like there's a, a long road to, to travel with it, I, I hope it's something that you get to make progress with. Because I think just, just the way in which you kind of described it in what I was reading about it and how focused it was on the sense of how it brought people into relations with their neighbours, with their neighbourhood, changing their perspective on it. It's funny, you know, it actually, I can see a lot of similarities from what you described about the way in which your visions of computing metaphors might get people more out into their physical environment and for those experiences to take place in the the physical world. And it's, um, there's something about the notion of people sort of floating through the air on their transportation journeys, which I think aligns quite, quite nicely with that. Yeah, it has. Okay, so we set up the problem statement, right? People want personal space and they don't want to schedule. Well, these things come every 10 seconds and they are like 10 or 15 person cars, right? So you just walk up and walk on. And then because they're driven by a cable and that motor is, you know, you can drive like seven miles with a single uh, motor. um, uh, There's no noise in the cabin. You're just floating through the air. It's really quiet. There's one in London that's more of a tourist line, but it goes between the O2 and and the Royal docks and you can go and ride it. And it's a little higher than it needs to be because that makes for a great show, but it's quiet. You're just like, you're flying. Like you can read, you can visit with the person who's in the car with you. It's not violent and loud like the tube, right? When you're on the tube, it like pulls you into the shell because you're underground. It's really loud. You're really packed together. And yeah. And so I love these ideas that people could just continue to have the culture that they have today. They did not have to adjust their culture in order to have mass transit. And mass transit is a powerful force for cities in that uh, people get trapped in their neighborhoods. They get trapped by their socioeconomic forces that locate them in certain areas where rents are certain desirability. And so when you have this kind of mass transit, you have a much more blended city and it spreads opportunity out widely. But I I didn't like this idea that we should be forced to use like 200-year-old technology. Like, let's accept trams because Amsterdam has trams and rich white people fly to Amsterdam and they ride the trams and they think we should have trams. <laughs> it's like, okay, no, maybe we don't have the same culture of trams. Like we don't have the, you know, the fastidiousness of the Dutch. We don't, <laughs> we don't have the risk tolerance of the Dutch to put tram, bike, canal, and car within inches of each other. I, I was like, perhaps we need to search for a technology that like celebrates what our culture was. And that's what I thought urban cable was, right? And if you go to South America, you find a lot of really interesting urban cable cities, including one in La Paz that carries 22 million people a year with like seven lines and they're expanding at the 14 lines and it operates in the black. It's really amazing. And I'm like, oh, we need to bring this technology to the US and I hope we can. It's just a long road, but that you're right. I mean, you come to think of it, this was a passion project, but it was one where design would really make a meaningful difference. And that design applied to civics as opposed to purely doing things on the negotiation of the numbers of engineerings and the numbers of politics really helps to make better cities. And I think it's something that Europe does a little better than the US right now. Well, it sounds like you've got uh, an opportunity there to make this uh, a showcase example uh, in your, your own city. Yeah, come to Austin in 40 years and ride the thing (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna gonna put the date in the diary now as i say this um you know that the sign of a good conversation is when you get to the end of it with a whole bunch more questions that you want to ask right certainly where i'm at with this but i really appreciate you coming on the show to talk about you know some of the work you've been doing at argo and the history behind it it's it's been fascinating for me and i hope we'll have the chance to do it again sometime Absolutely. I I just want to end with just something I kind of tag on to every good conversation like this, be it in a bar or on a podcast or a conference. And that's that I really optimistically believe that the purpose of humanity is to create as much love and intellect for the universe as possible. In fact, we will find out someday those are physical forces. And I really also believe optimistically that the future is in innovation and that we can have an entire society that is post-scarcity with logistics by adhocracy, ecology by eco-poets, abundance by automation, frictionless, bloodless revolution, curated capitalism, and a spiritualism driven by phylotics, that we do not need to panic in this moment of humanity between biological and technological um, evolution and look backwards and think that we need to regress into a safe space. Let's bravely go forth in innovation. We can invent 
uh, and technology can get us out of this so much as we, so if so much we love it as much as we love humanity. I, I, I love these ideas and I, I hope others do. And I've really enjoyed this conversation. So thank you. <laughs> So I don't know about you, but I'm beginning to think Mark Ralston is proving to be a pretty good source of guest recommendations. In the prior episode to this one, we talked to his friend Robert Fabricant, which I thought was another great chat. Uh, And now this one with Jarrett, which for me was just delightfully mind expanding. I really loved how Jarrett manages to bridge that divide between, I guess, what's needed in the present the nuts and the bolts of the doing, and yet keep his eyes gazing far out to this horizon of possibilities. And that emphasis on how you get there through learning through making, you know, how you achieve those things by the the doing of it and learning as, as you go. So big thanks to Mark for the introduction. And if you want to have a listen to that original conversation with him, then just look for episode 68 in the archives at mobileuserexperience.com. If you want to drop me a line about anything, then the email address to use, an email is probably the the best way to do it, is designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. So you might want to share some feedback on the show. Always love to hear what people are enjoying or what you might like us to try a bit differently in the future. You might have a recommendation for a guest. All of my best guests have come through those kind of intros. Uh, Or you might just want to say hi, which is fantastic too. Designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com is the email address to use. I'm going to be back soon with a new episode. But in the meantime, if you're enjoying the podcast, then really the single best thing you can help to do to help us build this MEX community is really, really simple. Just have a think about which of your friends might also enjoy what we're trying to do here and send them the link. Send them over to mobileuserexperience.com so they can check out the podcast for themselves. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.